You're listening to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Williton Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. We also stream live at kzyx.org. Altogether, we are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting Listener-Supported Community Radio. We're also found on Facebook. And today, we are broadcasting from the Redwood Coast Senior Center in Fort Bragg, California. Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. The world today is divided in many ways, religiously, politically, economically, geographically, and for hundreds of years, scientifically. We are going to concentrate today on the scientific divide because we have with us today a wonderful guest who will help us understand why we are so divided and why so many people and organizations don't trust science. Naomi Oreskes is professor of the history of science and affiliated professor of earth and planetary sciences at Harvard University. Her books include The Collapse of Western Civilization, A View from the Future, and Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming. The book that we will be discussing today is Why Trust Science. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome Naomi Oreskes to Politics, A Love Story. Hi, Naomi. Hi, good to be with you today. It's really good to have you here. Now, I, I'll start off with just a, a, an opening statement from your book. Doubts about science are sown by tobacco companies, the fossil fuel industry, free market think tanks, and other powerful organizations with economic interests and ideological commitments that run counter to scientific findings. So, would you like to... Uh, start us with that. Sure. Well, it's exactly what you just said. A lot of people think that confusion about science is because of public illiteracy, that people don't understand science. If only they were educated, then we wouldn't have this problem. And our research shows that that's not true. And sadly, that the reason for our partisan divide is a lot more serious and unhappily a lot nastier than that that what we showed in our research is that for 30 years or more, there have been systematic attempts to undermine public trust in science, funded by regulated industries like the tobacco industry and the fossil fuel industry, who want us to distrust science because science demonstrates the harms of their products. We also have seen the way partisan divides have been deliberately exploited for ideological reasons by right-wing think tanks like the Competitive Enterprise Institute, who in the name of free market or libertarian ideologies, which, you know, I would say they're certainly entitled to their political opinions, but in the name of those opinions, they have disparaged and denied scientific facts, and they have deliberately tried to make the American people think that we didn't really know if climate change was real, or more recently, some of these groups, that we don't really know that masks work. And so we have a very difficult situation where it's not enough simply to educate people about the science, we also have to undo the damaging effects of disinformation. And just going back to uh, the beginning, um, uh, let's talk about how science works a bit. And you point out that empiricism rose in the 19th century, and we must observe science in order to understand it. Is there a scientific method? That, you're asking me that as a question? Yes, I am. Yes. Method? yes. Yes. So the short answer is no. There is no one singular scientific method. And so this is a source of a great deal of confusion because many people think there is a scientific method. And so if scientists follow that method, then everything's fine. And if they don't follow the method, then we could distrust them. And this has been exploited, for example, by the people who, who reject climate science. So the reality is that climate method, that, sorry, the reality is that scientific methods are very diverse. Uh, that sometimes scientists do what many people think of as the scientific method, which is to say to have a hypothesis, deduce its consequences, and then see if the hypothesis holds up. That's one thing that scientists do. But scientists also study the world observationally. Scientists also do animal tests. Scientists also do clinical trials. 
scientists also build models, both physical models and computer models. And all of these diverse approaches are ways to try to understand the natural world. Some people who don't want us to understand science will sometimes say, well, that's not scientific because it's just a model. And we hear this a lot in climate science. But, of course, the reality is that modeling is a really, really important part of science. So, yes, it's a model, and that's fine. And so part of my work in my recent book, Why Trust Science, I talk about this. Modeling is a key part of scientific work. And so if something's a model, yes, that is what it is. And it's one way in which scientists study and understand the natural world. And also in your book, you point out that science is the practice of formulating meaningful statements and using observations to judge whether a meaningful statement is correct. Exactly. So I think the important thing for people to understand about science is that all science, no matter how it's done, involves some form of testing. So scientists make claims, they make what they hope are meaningful statements, and by that, philosophers mean statements that can be tested with respect to some kind of observation. So it could be direct observation of the natural world, observation of the stars or the planets or rocks and minerals or fossils or, or animals, plants, or it could be uh, observation in some kind of more controlled way, like a randomized clinical trial, such as the, the observations that are taking place now in the tests of the COVID-19 vaccine, or it could be a model that is a way to uh, test observations in a, in, a, um, you know, in a simulated world, like in a computer simulation. So these are all different ways of generating observations and testing claims based on observation. And it's that interaction between the observations of the natural world, what we could call the facts of the natural world, and our attempts to interpret it in hypothesis and theory and modeling that constitute the stuff of scientific research. And you brought in um, another scientist, uh, and that was Willard Van Orman Quine, who posed questions. How do scientists decide which part of their belief structure needs to re be revised in light of an anomaly? And how do they decide whether a small adjustment is sufficient or a scientific revolution is in order? And if the new paradigm is incommensurable with the one it proposes to replace, on what basis do scientists make the choice to accept it? I realize that's a big statement. There's a lot to unpack. <laughs> yeah. But, but you yeah. can take it anywhere or even a small part of it. That, that would be fine. Sure. Well, I think the important part, many people have heard of the notion of paradigms in science. Many people know the expression of paradigm shift. Yes. And so this is an important idea in science, that um, a lot of science progresses incrementally, Every day, scientists are making observations that enrich their understanding of the natural world. And that's how science operates most of the time. But periodically, there are these big changes in the history of science. And historians have spent a lot of time trying to understand these big changes, like the rise of quantum mechanics and relativity in physics, or in my field, earth science, the rise of plate tectonic theory. Previously, scientists believed that continents didn't move, and now we would say that we know that they do. So these big shifts provide a kind of challenge to our understanding of the truth of scientific theories, because if we have to acknowledge that, yes, sometimes scientists do change what they think about the natural world, and most of us would see that as progress, scientists learn more, and so now we have a better, more complete, or more accurate understanding of the natural world. But that's a little challenging, a little problematic, because then we have to say, well, hold on a second. You know, the scientists who thought continents didn't move uh, they thought they had a good understanding of the natural world, but now we say that continents do move. So maybe, you know, why should we believe scientists now when they scientists do say continents do move when before they said they didn't? And so in my work, I've really tried to take that question on board and to say, yeah, it's a legitimate question, and we do have to live with that tension. And so part of the answer is, first of all, to accept that science is imperfect, that science is a human activity, and that, like any human activity, scientists make mistakes. And sometimes scientists look back on previous work and think, oh, no, that wasn't so great. Just like we sometimes look back on previous times in our lives and think, oh, that wasn't so great. But if science is working properly, if scientists are open to new evidence and open to new ideas, they address those problems and they hopefully develop a better understanding of the natural world. And this is what most historians and philosophers of science would say does happen. 
But the important point here that I just want to add is that it's not the decision of just one person. If it were just the decision of one person, we might say, well, he was wrong before, so why should we believe him now? But in this case, it's a different group of people, first of all, but most important is that it's not just one person. You have groups of people looking at a problem from a lot of different angles. And so as long as we have that robust investigation um, by lots of people looking at a problem in lots of different ways, the odds that they're going to get it right, in most cases, I think we can say are pretty good. And you have um, an, another small paragraph that I think helps explain things in a, a more uh, layperson's uh, terms, and I'm going to read it. You say, natural scientists study the natural world. Social scientists study the social world. Why trust a plumber or an electrician or a dentist or a nurse? One answer is that we trust a plumber because she is trained and licensed to do plumbing. We would not trust a plumber to do our nursing or a nurse to do our plumbing. It is the nat nature of ex expertise that we trust experts to do jobs for which they are trained and we are not. Without this trust in experts, society would come to a standstill. Scientists are our designated experts for studying the world. Therefore, to the extent that we should trust anyone to tell us about the world, we should trust scientists, informed trust. I thought that well, was a great for, explanation. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for reading that passage, because I like that as well. So there's a, a few things in that passage that I think are important that I'd like to underscore. So first of all, as you said, it's a plain language down-to-earth explanation, because I think one of the mistakes we make in talking about science is that we sometimes talk about science as if it's this highly exalted, extremely difficult and hard to understand activity. And sometimes it is, you know, explaining the details of quantum mechanics is not a trivial thing. But the process of doing scientific work is about a form of work. And that's something that anyone can understand. So when we talk about science as work, we immediately bring it down to earth. And then we can think about the analogy that you just read about plumbers and nurses and electricians and car mechanics that in our daily life, we trust other people to do all kinds of things. We trust our car mechanic, in most cases, hopefully we have a good car mechanic, we trust the electrician, the plumber, the nurse. I mean, every day we are trusting other people to do things for us, and we need to do that. Otherwise, society would come to a standstill. You know, we could have a dream of living a self-sufficient life off-grid where we do everything for ourselves, and there are a very, very tiny number of people who actually do that and a probably even tinier number of people whom it actually really suits. But most of us like the fact that we have a plumber to do the plumbing and a car mechanic because we don't actually know how to do these things ourselves. And even if we tried to learn, it might actually not be something we want to spend our time doing. So we trust the plumber to do the plumbing because the plumber knows how to do plumbing, has been trained, has experience, expertise. And science is actually no different than that. Scientists are people who have been trained to do science. And so they know things about the natural world that we don't know and that we can benefit from learning just the same way we can benefit from having a professional electrician, you know, fix the electricity. Yes, and uh, then we come to another thing is why should the conclusions of climate scientists about climate change be viewed as more authoritative than those originating, originating from the petroleum industry or arguments about cancer and heart disease from the tobacco industry or about diabetes or obesity from Coca-Cola? Well, you point out the answer is simple, conflict of interest. Right, exactly. There's actually two things there. So the obvious one is the conflict of interest. So the petroleum industry has said a lot of nonsense about climate change, and the pretty obvious reason is that they have a huge, massive, existential conflict of interest. Climate change tells us that we cannot go on using oil, gas, and coal the way we have been doing without seeing massive disruption to the climate system that is going to hurt a lot of people, a lot of innocent people. In fact, it's already hurting a lot of innocent people. You're in Fort Bragg. You know, you guys have seen this firsthand. Wildfires devastate communities. They destroy people's homes. They kill people. And we know beyond any reasonable doubt that the wildfires in the American West are getting worse because of climate change. Similarly, hurricanes flood communities, destroy homes, kill people. Uh, we have seen this now over and over again now with Hurricane Maria, Hurricane Michael, Hurricane Katrina, um, Hurricane Irma. We have had 
record-breaking hurricanes year after year now for more than a decade, and we know beyond any reasonable doubt that this is not just a coincidence. It's not just bad luck that these hurricanes are getting worse. They're getting worse because the ocean is heating up, and the heat in the ocean drives the hurricanes. But the fossil fuel industry doesn't want us to believe that. They want us to think that we don't really know, or it's just bad luck that we're having these terrible fires, or that the fires are caused by mismanagement, which may be a component, there may be a part of it that is that, but it's not the main thing. So they want us to be confused because it's in their interest for us to be confused. And that's the sort of difficult part of the story because, you know, it's hard to accuse other people of dishonesty and malfeasance, but the reality is that we have overwhelming evidence that that is, in fact, what has happened. And if we, I could add one other point on go this, ahead. just on the issue of expertise. The other reason why this is very important to understand is because it's also telling us about the specificity of expertise. So we often talk about scientists, and that category, the category of scientists, is a useful one for thinking about certain kinds of questions. But when we actually are trying to understand a complicated scientific problem, whether it's climate change or the transmission of COVID-19 or the harms of tobacco, no one is really a scientist, right? Someone is an oncologist or an epidemiologist or an atmospheric chemist. The scientists scientific expertise has a very high degree of specificity. And if I want to understand what happens to the atmosphere when there's more greenhouse gases in it, I need to talk to someone who's an atmospheric physicist or an atmospheric chemist. But what the industry does to try to confuse us is they will trot someone out who does not have appropriate expertise in that area, but who for whatever reason is willing to do the bidding of the fossil fuel industry. And they'll say, well, I'm a scientist and I think I have a different opinion. But in almost all cases, the vast majority of these cases, these people are not actually climate scientists. But the public gets confused because they're presented as scientists. And what we see is a scientist arguing about it. And we think, oh, well, scientists are arguing. We don't really know. So maybe let's just wait and see. And that's exactly what they want. Let me take this opportunity to reintroduce you. You are listening to Politics, a Love Story, and our guest today is Naomi Oreskes, whose latest book is Why Trust Science. I am your host, Bob Bashansky. Now, what you just said is a perfect segue into the next paragraph. Uh, the checkered history of research in American industry that was designed to distract, confuse, and or misform also helps us to address on uh, one of the more nefarious strategies of industry— doubt-mongering. The claim that they are instantiating the spirit of scientific inquiry when they pose skeptical questions and that it is scientists who are being dogmatic, this is an intellectually noxious move because it takes the strength of science and turns it into a weakness and falsely imputes scientific motives to activities that are intended to undermine science. That was well put. Thank you. Well, again, exactly. And so this is lovely to have you read to me parts of my book that you like and that I like, too. So this is exactly right. So one of the reasons this issue is so difficult is because, as, we, as I said in that section you just read, the people who are casting doubt on science take things that are the strength of science and turn into weakness. And by that I mean it's natural for scientists to be skeptical. A certain amount of healthy skepticism is essential for science. We might just call it curiosity, that we want to know how the world works, and we might be skeptical about existing explanations if they don't have good evidence to support them. And so it's normal and natural for scientists to be skeptical up to a point, and most scientists are trained to think that skepticism is a good thing. We're also trained to argue, to ask tough questions. If a colleague gets up at a meeting and says, well, I believe X, Y, Z, we consider it our job to say, well, where's the evidence? Show me the sample. How big is the sample size? How well do the statistics hold up? And that kind of tough questioning and challenging is what makes science work, that all scientific claims get vetted, and the vetting is tough and sometimes even a little bit mean. But in that process, we sort through claims and we throw out claims that are not supported by evidence, and we hold on to the claims that are supported. But what the fossil fuel industry has done is to, try, is to turn that on its head and to say, well, we don't believe climate change, 
and we're being scientific because we're skeptical. And the scientists, they're being dogmatic because they're insisting that they know what the truth is, when in reality they claim, uh, I'm not agreeing with this, I'm just repeating their claim, uh, that good scientists should be skeptical. Well, of course, good scientists should be skeptical, but not to the point of being skeptical is not rejecting knowledge. That's what I would call corrosive skepticism or simply denial. If we have enormous evidence that something is true, and yet someone says, well, I just don't believe it, that's not skepticism. That's not a scientific attitude. That's simply denial. And it's interesting that uh, there have been documents unearthed from the petroleum petroleum industry that go back many years where they already knew that uh, burning fossil fuels was harming the environment, and yet uh, they have spent hundreds of millions of dollars trying to disprove that to the public. Exactly. So we know from our research and also the work that um, a number of investigative journalists have done at the Los Angeles Times and Inside Climate News, that the fossil fuel industry was well aware of the potential threat of climate change going back into the 1960s. And in some cases, for example, ExxonMobil, which is the most well-documented case, but I'm sure not the only one, uh, the scientists within the, their companies, their own scientists, had said to them, this is a real threat, uh, it's serious, it has the potential to damage the world in very profound ways, and our product, petroleum, uh, may need to be limited. We may need to, to think about um, a future in which we won't be able to burn oil and gas the way we do now. And we know that these fossil fuel companies knew this in the 1970s. But instead of accepting that evidence and thinking about, okay, well, could we adjust our business model? Could we begin to develop other products? Should we switch to renewable energy? Instead of doing a host of a number of possible things they might have done, they went the route of the tobacco industry, which was to engage in denial, to claim that we didn't really know, to make it seem as if there was a big scientific debate, even when there really wasn't, um, and to insist that if we tried to fix the problem, it would wreck the economy. None of those claims were true, and all of them followed very closely the strategy that the tobacco industry had used to try to keep us smoking cigarettes long after we knew that smoking was deadly. And if we look um, for answers about climate change, the safety of vaccinations, whether plate tectonics is an accurate and adequate theory of global tectonics, and if drinking water fluoridation prevents cavities, we will find claims competing for our attention. Some of the claims are simply unscientific, which is to say not based on vetted evidence, while others have been shown by evidence to be false, yet they persist. And those are considered by some people as zombie ideas. You kill them and they come back to life. Exactly. So then one of the questions is, well, why do they keep coming back to life? And sometimes they come back to life just because people are curious. Or when people don't like an answer, then they may be inclined to search out other answers. But the most important reason they keep coming back to life is because the fossil fuel industry keeps them alive. And so we've seen in the case of climate change over 30 decades, virtually all of the major uncertainties about climate change have been addressed by scientists. So if you ask the question, is this just natural variability? Scientists have done the work to show that the answer to that question is no. If you ask the question, well, how do we know it's caused by human activities and not, for example, volcanoes? Scientific, scientists have done the research to show that we know that the answer to that is we know that it's caused by human activities, and moreover, we know that it's mostly caused by greenhouse gases, and more than that, we know it's mostly caused by greenhouse gases that come from burning fossil fuels or deforestation. So all of these questions have been answered, and yet we see the fossil fuel industry and their allies raising these questions again and again and again, and also suggesting alternative theories. So, for example... I mean, many times I give public lectures and someone will say, well, how do we know climate change is caused by volcanoes? And whenever I hear that, then I know that they've been on a climate denial website because this is a question that is put forward constantly by the fossil fuel industry and their allies. And of all the complaints and questions they raise, it's one of the stupidest because actually, in fact, the effect of volcanoes is mostly to cool the atmosphere, not to warm it. So if there had been an increase in volcanic activity, we would expect the planet to cool, not warm. But also, we know there hasn't been any increase in activity in volcanoes. I mean, it's not that easy to hide volcanoes. 
when volcanoes erupt, we know when that happens. So <laughs> if there had been some big change in volcanic activity, we would know that. So there is no evidence for that hypothesis at all, and yet it comes up over and over and over again. And a lot of this dishonesty actually uh, affects our uh, citizens, our the residents of the United States, because... Um, you point out that studies show in the U.S. among Democrats and independent voters, higher levels of education correlated with higher levels of acceptance of scientific claims. But among Republicans, the opposite is true. The more educated Republicans are, the more likely they are to doubt or reject scientific claims about anthropogenic climate change. This indicates not a lack of knowledge, but the effects of ideological motivation, interpreted self-interests, and the power of competing beliefs. The X factor seems to be corporate interests distorting facts and funding studies where they are paying for a desired outcome. Exactly. And so this is a very clear example of how confirmation bias works. So we know that it, the Republican Party has been telling its voters, its base, uh, for decades now that climate change wasn't really real or we didn't really know for sure, we didn't have a consensus, uh, we didn't know if it was caused by human activities, and in any case, it's too expensive to fix or we can just adapt. And we have heard that argument made over and over again by Republican leaders going back to President George W. Bush. So it's not really surprising that Republicans who probably trust their leaders, at least to some degree, um, would think that at least some of those claims were true. And if they're curious about it, and if they're motivated, and they go online to try to find evidence, uh, well, the motivated person, the motivated conservative or Republican, can easily find Republican websites, pages of Republican members of Congress, or libertarian think tanks, where these ideas are reinforced, where these ideas are repeated. And so motivated Republicans go to these websites where these arguments get repeated, and it entrenches their, their view. Now, you might say, oh, but don't Democrats do that too? Well, they probably do, but the difference is that in one case, facts are on one, are on one side. The facts on this question are overwhelmingly on the side of climate change being real and caused by human activities and being damaging and costly. Um, so... You know, this is a case where, you know, we can say there are two sides to an issue, but in this case, one side has all the science on it. I'd like to explore another section of your book um, that has a few case studies, and one I find really weird, but uh, we'll, we could discuss it a bit, and it's the limited energy theory. In, back mm -hmm. in 1873, yes. Edward Clark stated that higher education of women would adversely affect their fertility. Now, that seems yeah. so absurd as to how could it even have come out? But that was back in 1873. We weren't as uh, far advanced in our scientific understanding. So could you give us a little bit about that? Well, I'd like to say that we don't have to worry because exactly what you just said. That was more than 100 years ago. You know, we're a lot smarter now. We understand things much better. Therefore, we don't have to worry. But, of course, part of the point of my book is, and part of the reason to explore these examples is to suggest, well... Hopefully we're smarter, but we might not be. <laughs> so, so in this case, Edward C. Clark was a very famous physician. He was a professor at Harvard Medical School. Um, and I love examples of people in my own institution because, you know, most people think Harvard people are pretty darn smart. Harvard people certainly think that. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, smart people can make big mistakes, and so we need to be alert to that. So his theory was that uh, if women became educated, the effort to, to engage in higher education, uh, the challenging studies of college degree, would be so taxing that it would adversely affect their fertility. And he called this limited energy theory because he claimed that this was a deduction, uh, a hypo so he claims he's using the hypothetical deductive model of science, in other words, what a lot of people think the scientific method is. And so he says the theory of thermodynamics tells us that in a closed system, energy can't be created or destroyed, and any energy used for one purpose is not available for another purpose. So therefore, if women put a lot of energy into being educated, they won't have the energy necessary to reproduce and have healthy children. But he just... Now, in hindsight... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, 
it, it's uh, really uh, odd that uh, this uh, scientist is of some sort uh, decided on this particular idea after only uh, speaking to seven subjects. That's not enough for an empirical study by far. Exactly. So, so this is my argument in the book, to say, okay, well, so here this man made a really, really quite preposterous claim, and in hindsight it's obvious that he's pretty sexist. And the claim is also taking place at a very specific time in U.S. history when a group of women's colleges were being founded in the Northeast, Radcliffe, Smith, Vassar, Wellesley, Barnard. So these colleges were being developed at this very time. So he is clearly trying to push back against the development of women's higher education. The theory is clearly wrong in many ways, and in the book I point out some of the obvious flaws. But the biggest, most obvious one is the incredibly small size of his study. He has a sample size of seven patients, and it's not at all randomized. There's no control group. And the patients are people who have come to him because they're having some kind of problem, and so it's a biased sample. So the argument in the book is that it's pretty clear that this man is insanely sexist, mm. but, we don't, but we don't have to just accuse him of being sexist. We can actually show how the work doesn't hold up methodologically. And so as citizens, we're not helpless in the face of the authority of science. We're not helpless in the face of the authority of a famous Harvard professor, myself included, but we can ask tough questions. And in this case, the obvious tough question is, well, why is this sample size so small? And also, the other important thing, it's one study. So one moral of this story is you should always be on the lookout for methodologically flawed studies, studies that have too small a sample. And also, um, no matter what the study is, if it's only one study, you probably should never actually believe just one study. You should say, well, that's interesting, but we need to do more work. And, of course, this is what good scientists do. So if you look at climate change, to fast forward to the present, I did an analysis of the climate science literature uh, in 2004, so it's 16 years ago. At the time, I analyzed 1,000 papers in climate science to get a handle on what scientists were saying about the issue. If you were to try to replicate that study today, you would probably have to look at something like 50,000 studies. Wow. So there is a huge, huge body of literature now. Um, it makes it harder to have a handle on all of it, but it's a big, big lesson that what we know about the climate system today is not based on one study or 10 studies or even 100 studies. It's based on tens of thousands of studies. And you point out that the uh, uh, study of eugenics uh, got brought into this thing uh, because the theory of eugenics has been used explicitly by climate change deniers to claim that because scientists were wrong about eugenics, they may be wrong about climate change. That's kind of disingenuous, isn't it? Exactly. It's deeply disingenuous. So, and again, one of the things I've tried to point out in my work is how these arguments are disingenuous. So in this case, um, it's basically just illogical, right? So as I've said already several times in this interview and as the book we talk about, I mean, the whole point of the book is to acknowledge that scientists do make mistakes, that scientists don't always get everything right. So how can we as citizens judge whether we should believe a scientific claim in the present? So one of the arguments of the book is to point out, well, okay, just hold on a minute here. Just because one group of scientists 100 years ago, and we're talking about something that took place 100 years ago, just because one group of scientists, let's call it Group X, was wrong about some issue, let's call it Y, it by no means files that 100 years later a totally different group of scientists, Group B, is talking about issue C. I mean, we just don't know. Each of these questions has to be judged on its own merits. So, yes, sometimes scientists make mistakes. Scientists made a lot of mistakes about eugenics. But, so we could put that in the sort of deficit column for science, but then we can list all the incredibly wonderful discoveries that scientists made, all the things that scientists have been right about, the germ theory of disease, plate tectonics, you know, RNA as a, and DNA, and, you know, we can go on and on and on with all of the times and great successes of science and all the knowledge we have today so to claim that we shouldn't believe climate scientists because a few scientists or even a lot of scientists were wrong about eugenics, that's just an illogical claim. And it's exactly what you say. It's completely disingenuous. 
And what's interesting is that in that same section of your book where you had various examples of uh, like the uh, limited energy, the eugenics, you also have something on dental floss. Uh, the week, yes. the magazine The Week ran a story under the headline, Everything You Believed About Flossing is a Lie. Other media outlets wrote similar stories, and it looked like the media got it right and scientists got it wrong. But that is not what happened. In fact, this is not a case of scientists getting it wrong at all. It is a case of journalists getting it wrong and scientists getting blamed. Yes, so the point of the book is not to beat up on journalists. I want journalists to be my friends and do nice interviews like this, but sometimes journalists have really done a giant disservice to the public understanding of science, and this is a very conspicuous example. Journalists are very eager to run with stories that are counterintuitive, uh, unexpected, surprising. And so when the argument came out that dental floss was no good, a lot of media outlets ran with it. And they ran with these very aggressive uh, headlines, like, you know, everything you know about dental floss is a lie, (laughs) which even if if the basic argument had been true, that would have been a very unfair headline, since obviously scientists are not lying about dental floss. The question was whether they were mistaken or not. but it turned out they weren't mistaken. It turned out that the, uh, the journalist who sort of broke the story, if we can call that, or it would be better to call it broke the misstory, <laughs> um, really, really misinterpreted a piece of scientific work. So one of the things that makes science challenging is that there are different kinds of evidence. And in biomedicine, we generally take the gold standard of evidence, or it's often referred to that way, the ideal evidence, if we can get it, is a randomized, double-blind clinical trial. So let me explain that what that means. So a clinical trial is when we have an intervention where we're trying to see whether something has an effect. It could be a new drug. It could be a vaccination. It could be dental floss. So right now, Pfizer is undertaking a big clinical trial of a proposed vaccine for COVID-19. Now, in order to test whether or not this intervention works, ideally, you have to compare a group of people who get the intervention with a group of people who don't get the intervention. Otherwise, you have no way of knowing for sure if it's working. So you have to be able to compare the two groups. So that's the, um, and the two groups have to be what is called randomized. That is to say, you have to make sure that the two groups are essentially the same in all other respects. Because if it turned out that, say, for example, you know, one group had a lot of people with asthma, uh, then the study could be biased. So you have to make sure that the groups are essentially similar, and so that's called randomization. And then ideally, the trial is also double-blind. And by that, it means that no one knows, no one in the study except the scientists know who's getting which intervention. So this means the patients don't know. So let's say you're getting a vaccine. Half of the group will get a placebo, uh, but the patients don't know if they're getting the real effect or you know, the real vaccine or the placebo so that they're not biased. And the people administering the vaccine don't know who's got which. So the whole idea is to avoid all possible biases and all possible effects that could mess up the trial. And it's pretty complicated. To do a large, double-blind, randomized clinical trial is a big deal. It's very expensive. takes a lot of work. Now, here's the thing. There are a lot of times when you just can't do that. Sometimes you can't do it because you don't have the money or the logistical support to do a study that big and that complicated. But sometimes you can't do it because it's simply just not possible for people not to know. And dental floss is a case of this. You know whether you're flossing your teeth or not. And if someone else flosses your teeth for you, which we actually have studies where that was done with children, you know that too. So there is simply no way to do a double-blind or even a single-blind study of dental floss. So what happened in this case is there's a group in England called the Cochrane Reports who review scientific evidence, and then they issue reports telling you how good is the evidence for a certain thing. And because they do reviews in biomedicine, they take the double-blind randomized clinical trial as the gold standard. And if they have studies of that type, which, um, and they have enough of them, they may say that the the evidence for this intervention is excellent or very good or very strong. If they don't have those kinds of studies, then they may say that the evidence is weak. 
Now, that does not mean the intervention doesn't work. It just means it's a judgment of the kind of evidence. And so in this particular case, the Cochrane Group did a review, and they concluded that the evidence for the efficacy of dental floss was weak. It did not mean that flossing didn't work. It meant that they didn't have a lot of good double-blind randomized clinical trials. So then the question you have, so let me just say, so the journalist misunderstood or misrepresented that as saying that flossing didn't work. And that argument or that conclusion was picked up and spread all over the media. And it's wrong. It's false. Because it turns out there's all kinds of evidence that flossing does work, other kinds of evidence. Evidence from clinical studies where dentists just look at the teeth of people or dental hygienists. Or, as I said, there was actually a study of school children where uh, dental hygienists or nurses came into the school and lost the teeth for the children, and sure enough, their teeth improved. So, in fact, it was actually a lot of evidence, but it was evidence of a certain kind and not a different kind. And so one of the arguments I make in the book is we have to pay attention to the question of different kinds of evidence. And we should never say that something doesn't work or isn't known simply because we don't have evidence of a particular kind. I call that methodological fetishism. It's being fetishistic about it and saying, well, if I don't get a randomized clinical trial, then I'm not going to believe it, when actually there could be a lot of other good evidence of other kinds. And yes, maybe it's true that evidence might not be as perfect. It might not be ideal. But in many cases, you can't get the ideal evidence, so you have to accept the less than ideal evidence. But it's still evidence. And you can still make a strong case in many cases. And we see this in many areas. It's not just dental floss. It's also nutrition. I mean, people know what they eat. You can't do blinded studies of nutrition. But that doesn't mean we should throw out population studies, for example, uh, or animal studies, right? We know a lot about nutrition through animal studies and through population studies. These are not randomized clinical trials, but they're still good evidence. Well, it seems that the uh, the public is so skeptical of science that it's... Uh, a wonder that this small story rose to the level of almost a scandal. Well, two things there. I mean, I think the story rose to a level because it was counterintuitive. And so a lot of journalists thought, oh, this is, this is fun. Uh, and also there was a certain schadenfreude in it, right? Like, oh, ha, ha, those stupid scientists, they've been telling us all along that we needed to floss our teeth. And it turns out, you know, it doesn't matter. And that's how many journalists presented the story. But again, that was wrong. That wasn't actually what the evidence showed. Well, Sorry, I just forgot what the first part of the question was. Uh, I, I guess I forgot as well. Now, let me just jump <laughs> to another thing that you brought up. Uh, if we ask scientists, why do evangelical Christians reject evolutionary biology? Many would answer that it is because they make a literal reading of the Bible, insisting that God created Earth and everything on it in six days. Would right. You, would you so agree with this, that? Oh, sorry, yeah. um, sorry, can you repeat the question again? Sure. If we ask scientists, why do evangelical Christians reject evolutionary biology? Many would answer that it is because they make a literal reading of the Bible, insisting that God created Earth and everything on it in six days. So the important thing to understand here is that scientists are actually wrong about why evangelical Christians are skeptical of evolutionary theory. And this is a really good example of how very often scientists are actually not scientific about their own work. And so one of the things I do in my work is to encourage scientists to bring the same standards of evidence, the same rigor, the same critical approach to questions about public understanding of science as they do to their science itself. So many scientists assume that the difficulty here has to do with biblical literalism and that evangelical Christians are making a literal reading of the Bible and therefore, because they believe the earth was made in six days, then therefore evolutionary theory can't be true. And we have enormous amounts of evidence to say that that's actually not what's going on. So most Christians do not make a literal reading of the Bible, and that even includes many evangelicals. But what we do find, and the research shows this pretty well, is that many evangelical Christians think that evolutionary theory implies that there's no God, or 
they think that evolutionary theory implies that life is random and meaningless and has no perfect purpose. And if you actually read evangelical literature, which I've done for this research, you almost never find evangelicals saying, well, God made the earth in six days, so there's no time for evolution. But you often find them saying, well, evolutionary theory says that life is random and meaningless, and I don't believe that. So this is what Eric Conway and I, in Merchants of Doubt, refer to as implicatory denial. You reject a theory because you don't like either its actual implications or its perceived implications. And this is terrifically important, because if evangelicals were rejecting evolutionary theory because they were reading the Bible literally, we'd have a very hard time doing anything about that. Because if someone does make a little reading of the Bible, there's really not much you can do to persuade them that they should not be literal, that they should be metaphorical. I mean, you could talk to them about theologians that have had metaphorical readings of the Bible. You could talk to them about how the Pope has a metaphorical reading of the Bible. But in general, those kinds of theological arguments don't generally work very well. But if you point out that their reading of the implications is actually wrong, that evolutionary theory doesn't disprove the existence of God, that's not a scientific question. No scientific theory can disprove the existence of God. And evolutionary theory doesn't tell us that life is meaningless, because that's a philosophical and metaphysical question. Again, not a scientific one. And that it's perfectly possible to be an evolutionary biologist and believe in God. Then you can begin to shift the conversation. And we have good evidence from research that people have done at Arizona State and elsewhere showing that that kind of approach does, in fact, make a difference. And that's a good segue into this next uh, paragraph. Um, what would reasons for trusting science be? Uh, a visiting uh, author in your book, Mark Lang, says, according to a 2012 Gallup poll, 46% of Americans deny the evolutionary or origins of human beings. In that same year, a congressman on the House Science Committee referred to evolution and the Big Bang as lies from the pit of hell. He also said... <laughs> In this kind of political climate, I think we need to do a better job of communicating the rational basis of science. Where we can, uh, we need to give a positive account of the logic underlying scientific reasoning. Right. Well, this reminded me of what it was I wanted to respond to that you had said earlier. So, first of all, it's important to point out that the vast majority of Americans still do trust science on most issues. There are a number of good studies. There was one by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, another by the Pew Research Foundation, that shows that most Americans still have a positive view of science, and most Americans do accept scientific findings in most areas. So the idea that there is a general crisis of trust in science is actually just not true. But what is true is that there are these specific areas in which some people, specific areas in which specific groups of people reject science. And so we've already talked about evangelical Christians being skeptical of evolutionary theory. We know that uh, conservative Republicans, particularly those who identify themselves as libertarians, tend to reject climate science. And they do it because of this problem of implicatory denial. So what this tells us is that, um, with all due respect to Mark Lang, and this is part of the whole point in the book of having a kind of give and take where uh, colleagues would comment on my arguments and then I would respond to them in a way we're sort of modeling the whole argument that science is about give and take and arguing and criticizing and, and revising our views in light of criticism. So I would say that, yes, I agree with Mark Lang that it is good to try to explain to people how science works, to demystify it, to make it easier to understand. But it's not exactly about the logic of science. People are not rejecting science because they don't understand the logic of it. It's because they have these misunderstandings about the implications. So I suppose maybe in a way you could say it's part of the logic of science to say that science doesn't deal with God. Science separates. God is a different problem. God is a problem of theology and metaphysics. Science cannot prove or disprove the existence of God. That's not exactly a logical claim. It's more like a kind of um, methodological claim that science is about the natural world and we set aside questions about supernatural or divine intervention. So in that sense, I suppose uh, Professor Lang is right that if we could make that clear to people and say, look, you know, you can believe whatever you want about God. Theology is a different domain. Uh, it's a separate 
kind of question. It's a different kind of question. And many great scientists have been religious believers. Even today, many scientists are people of faith. And one thing we found is effective in the evolutionary theory domain, uh, if you introduce students to scientists who are themselves religious people or assign readings from scientists who are themselves religious people, that, for many students, is revelatory because they didn't know that was possible. Many students would say, oh, I thought that if, that if you wanted to be a scientist, you had to be an atheist. And when you show that that's just not true, for many undergraduates, it's a very freeing thing. It's very liberating, and it resolves a huge anxiety for them because many students come to college thinking they have to choose between their religious faith and science. And when they learn that they don't have to choose, that they can have both, uh, for many people that's a great relief. Well, Naomi, um, that's a good... Uh, uh, we'll stay with that just for a moment, because you pointed out in the book that Vice President Mike Pence believes that the Earth was created 10,000 years ago, not the 4.5 billion that most scientists believe. In fact, 67% of regular churchgoers believe as Mike does. Not all of them are Republicans. You point out that 58% of the uh, Republicans uh, who vote that way agree. So do 39% of independents and 41% of Democrats. Uh, That's somewhat disconcerting. Well, it's true. I suppose there's a bit of a good news, bad news story. The good news story is it's not just Republicans, right? So we don't have to be excessively partisan here. This challenge is one that actually cuts across the aisle. And most people, particularly most scientists I know, would, would never suspect that. So it is interesting and important for us to understand that. Uh, but you're right, it is a bit disconcerting, because I did just say that you can be a scientist and still believe in God, and that's absolutely true. However, it is hard to be a scientist and believe some of the things that some of our fellow Americans believe, and particularly the vice president. I mean, there is overwhelming scientific evidence that the Earth uh, is 4.5 billion years old, and the universe is, of course, that much older. Um, And there's no way to reconcile science with a belief in a young Earth unless you interpret that aspect of the Bible metaphorically. And, of course, there's a huge theological literature that does support this, Um, I mean, I come from the Jewish faith, I'm a Reconstructionist Jew. One of the things that our theologians point out is that, uh, oh, now I'm forgetting, I think it's not until the third day that God separates the light from the dark. So we actually have no idea how long the first two days took, because they clearly weren't 24-hour days. And there's a huge theological literature about this. And even in the early 20th century, most evangelical Christians in America did not think that the six days of creation were six 24-hour days. In fact, this came up in the Scopes trial. So why someone like Mike Pence would insist on what I would consider to be a kind of throwback theological position, a position that was rejected by many Christian theologians, is to me, frankly, a mystery, and I don't understand it. But it is difficult to reconcile that kind of view with the results of scientific evidence. And so there are these areas where we do have tension and conflict. The other area where we have tension and conflict has to do with the line you just read about, human evolution. So one of the things we know is that many Americans do accept that evolution applies to all the other stuff on Earth. The worms, the birds, the primates, the monkeys, the horses, the plants, the bugs. But they don't think it applies to people. And this is what I would call homo sapiens exceptionalism. They think that God made an exception for people. Hmm. And that's a belief that science cannot prove or disprove. It's certainly possible that in order to get humans, God breathes some special extra thing into us. Um, And so my view of that view is that I respect people who feel that way. It's not something that can ever be proven or disproven by science. Most scientists would say it's not necessary that evolutionary theory can account for the rise of homo sapiens. But again, at some point, we just have to say there are certain things that we cannot fully know, and then it's good to be tolerant and open-minded. Now we're getting down to near the end of our time. Not quite yet. We have a couple of minutes, but I want to read from another one of your colleagues who uh, wrote in your book, uh, and that was... uh, Uh, on the present and future of science inspired by you, uh, and it's John A. Krosnick who wrote this. 
I hope that these thoughts, inspired by Dr. Oreski's lectures and essays, complement her essays with a focus on more contemporary history and the present of science. In offering these thoughts, I hope to encourage all scientists to consider this to be a good moment to stop and reflect, to try to learn from the past of science, and to redirect the present and future of science in ways that considerably enhance the efficiency of the enterprise in achieving its goals. Yeah, I think that's really beautifully put, and I would agree with that. In a way, I would say the, my book has two audiences. One audience are the general public who would like to have a better understanding of how science works and who might even be a little bit skeptical and might want an answer to the question of, well, why should we trust science? But it's also targeted at scientists who I think often don't actually have good answers to the question of why other people should trust what they've found. And I think that if scientists would take these questions on board a little bit more, think through them a little bit more deeply, scientists could do a better job reaching out to the rest of our communities and that would be a good thing for everyone. And your reply was, my work has shown for the most part that conflicts about climate policy are not necessarily rooted in a lack of trust in climate science. They are rooted in economic self-interest and ideological commitments and are intended to stymie discussion of climate <coughs> policies. Right, exactly. And again, this is where these things are, are difficult and we have to try to patiently unpack the different threads. So, as I, as I said and you read, the rejection of the reality of anthropogenic climate change is not based on misunderstanding the science. It's based on not wanting to accept the science because you don't like its implications. And this is why we find climate change denial so much more prevalent among conservative Republicans than among independents or Democrats. Because most of the solutions, well, let me back up, climate change is a market failure. Markets have not adequately protected us from what economists would call the external cost of climate change. So we burn fossil fuels, it pollutes the environment, and there are big costs associated with that. And then we, the general public, are stuck picking up the bill. So that's a market failure. It's a case where the market is not working efficiently, and it's not um, fairly distributing the cost of a product. And virtually all economists accept this and recognize that climate change is a market failure. But, so how do you fix a market failure? Well, you fix a market failure with some kind of governance, some kind of government intervention. Could be a carbon tax, could be a regulation, uh, it could be phasing out fossil fuel subsidies, it could be subsidizing renewables, many different kinds of possible policy solutions. But all of them, all of them involve some kind of governance. So now if you're a Republican who doesn't like big government and who's been persuaded that government's the problem, not the solution, then it's going to be very, very hard for you to accept this. You're going to want to think that we can just let the market do its magic and this will all somehow get worked out. And so you're going to be, dis you're going to be disinclined to accept the scientists saying, no, this problem is not going away and it's getting worse and it's hurting us and it's costing us money. And so we see very strong resistance to accepting to accepting these findings among conservative Republicans and libertarians who are opposed to government interventions in the marketplace. And so that tells us something really, really important that I think until pretty recently many scientists did not understand. It tells us that you can't solve the problem by just giving people more science. If you just keep piling on the data, if you, even if you try to explain the science better, it won't change people's minds because it's not addressing what their concern is. And so one of the things I try to do in my work is to show that there are market-based mechanisms for addressing these problems, and they don't have to take away our personal freedom, and they work. So, for example, in our first book, Merchants of Doubt, Eric Conway and I showed how uh, when the problem of acid rain first began to be understood, there was a similar kind of disinformation campaign about acid rain as we've now seen about climate change. And the way we got around it was by introducing emissions trading for acid rain. And that was implemented by a Republican governor, governor uh, sorry, President, President George H.W. Bush. And, um, and it worked. And it didn't raise the price of electricity, and it didn't deny people their individual freedom and liberty. And so if you can show people examples that could allay their fears uh, and remind them that 
the purpose of this is not to increase government and it's not to increase your taxes, it's to prevent people from getting hurt, then that, at least in some cases, can be a more effective intervention than if you just keep piling on the facts. So the book is Why Trust Science. The author is Naomi Oreskes. And this last couple of sentences I would like to uh, end the session with. There is much we do not know, but that is no reason not to trust science on the things we do know. The argument for trust in science is not an argument for blind or blanket trust. It is an argument for warranted confidence against unwarranted skepticism in scientists' findings in their domains of expertise. I want to thank you very much. This was a wonderful session that we had together, and I'm so glad that you were able to make it. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Same here. Bye-bye, Naomi. Bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolets and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.